0: Our key scripture this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn over there, and I will be reading it here for you this morning. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? the iniquity of us all. We're picking up the story again today, and today we get to talk about the birth of Jesus. I know we're close to December, but we're just jumping the gun a little bit here today. But there was roughly 400 years between the time that the prophet Malachi spoke and his words were recorded in the Bible and the time that we have the accounts of the birth and life of Jesus. For this reason, because there were no other scriptures scriptures that were added to the Bible at that time, sometimes people call it the silent period, although that that is a really big misnomer. Because a lot actually happened within those 400 years. It was a time of social and political upheaval, And it was anything but a silent time for the Jewish people. The Maccabean revolt against the Seleucids during the second century BC was one of the most heroic eras of Jewish history. And that happened during those 400 years. There were numerous numerous significant writings that were produced as well, including uh, the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, was also an important product of that period so that more people could actually read the Old Testament. And it became the Bible for Greek-speaking Jews outside of Palestine and later in the early church. That was produced during that time. But God's story wasn't finished. Even though there was this time of sort of trying to figure out what was going on and what was coming and what was next, people were waiting on God and he waiting for him to tell the next part of the story. As the Apostle Paul put it, when the set time had fully come. God was ready to reveal His plan. The plan of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, whose birth, life, death, and resurrection was going to change the course of the entire story. So the Messiah is coming. The one whose scripture is spoken of will take his first breath. But there is a question that we need to ask because we kind of know what happens, most of us. Will the people that meet Jesus, know that he is the Messiah? Now, that's a tricky question, folks. And there are a lot of different and complex answers we can give to that question. But it is extremely relevant to our evaluation of the life of Jesus and how we interacted with the people around him. The thing you need to be assured of is that the people of God were indeed waiting in anxious anticipation for the one who was to come. They could not wait for the Messiah to come. The problem was that they thought they knew exactly who the Messiah was going to be, what he was going to look like, and more importantly, what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to be a king. He was going to come and reestablish his throne In the capital city of Jerusalem, he was going to be a mighty warrior who could rally their armies and lead them into battle against anyone, anywhere, at any time, and God would give them victory. They would be their own people again through the actions of this king. He would throw off Rome and they could live as a sovereign nation once again under God even believing that Jerusalem itself would somehow be raised to the place of the capital of the earth. And God would make everything right through this person. Instead, they got a baby born in a stable to a poor family. They were not married. And he becomes a homeless man. He would grow to do amazing things. He just would not be who they expect him to be or do the things they expect him to do. Because they are looking for something else, many will miss him completely. Think about that for a second. Because they are looking for something else, many will miss him completely. The victory they were looking for wasn't the victory they got. The victory they got was better, but they couldn't tell because it was not what they were expecting. Two questions I want you to think about a little bit this morning. And that is this. Does our sense of expectation keep us sometimes from missing out on what God is actually doing? And do we want the things of God, or do we want God Himself? It's time to dismiss our kids to children's church or the nursery or wherever it is they want to go. Uh, I'm sorry I was not present when uh, the announcements were made. The movie we are watching tonight is The Greatest Showman. So uh, that is the movie for tonight. A lot of singing, a lot of dancing. A lot of stomping on tables, as a matter of fact. So uh, today we are, as I said earlier, launching uh, back into the story. And last week we reviewed uh, some of what the story told us, and in particular what we learned about the characters. So the main character in the story is God, and what does God want the most? To have relationship with us. That's right. And so, uh, the, the enemy, the bad guy in the story is who? Satan. Satan. And what is Satan's one goal? That's right. To drive us away from him. To, uh, tempt us, to frustrate us, to make us angry, to put us in a position where we just are, are done with God. And we are those people in the middle that are constantly being pulled one way and then the other. Uh, and we saw through the story that Humanity, in and of itself, in the middle of this struggle, right, that they are pulled away from God for multiple reasons. Okay? And so we saw that we have a tendency, humanity has a tendency to, when they are offered things besides God, to take those things. And even to put those things in the place that God should inhabit within our lives. We saw also that God is looking for a particular kind of person throughout the story. And it's not something elaborate, it's not something crazy, it's not something weird. God is just looking for people who will do three simple things. They will hear that he is speaking, they will listen to what he says, and then they will follow his direction. That's... That's what he wants and what he's looking for. And we saw that humanity going, you know, up and down and backwards and forwards and left and right, dances around that thing the whole time. Maybe, you know, humanity doesn't always hear God. They don't even know he's talking. Or they know he's talking and they're not listening to him. Or they listen to him, but then they don't follow him. And we see those things happen throughout the story. Now, as we mentioned, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, 400 years have passed. A lot has happened during that time. Um, Religious parties have risen up within uh, the nation of Israel. You've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, you've got the Zealots. You have all these different things happening and coming to this one moment in time where God is ready to unveil his plan to the world. Is anyone here a uh, Star Wars fan? Like, Now, I want to clarify something for those of you who did raise your hand. There is a difference between, oh, I like Star Wars, and being a Star Wars fan. There is. There's a a major difference between those things. So uh, if you are like a diehard Star Wars fan, then what I'm going to tell you is just a confirmation of who you are. Uh, If you are not a diehard Star Wars fan, this is useful information so that you don't end up on the wrong end of a conversation uh, at some point. Uh, Star Wars fans, like hardcore fans, are very, very opinionated people. Um, I cannot emphasize emphasize very enough. They have very strong feelings about all the movies, about all the characters in the movies, about what happens in the movies, about what should have happened in the movies. I mean, it is, it's involved. Let's just put it that way. Being a Star Wars fan is involved. So, an interesting thing that has been happening over the last couple of years, as you're probably aware, is that several new Star Wars movies uh, have come out, uh, particularly over the last three years. And two of them are uh, were part of sort of the mainline story that is being told. And then there were a couple of others that took place um, in, in sort of alternate uh, alternate times or places. Uh, but the new movies that, that came out, they were taking place roughly 30 years after Return of the Jedi. And so it was picking up right there with the next generation of people. So when when The Force Awakens was announced, people were so excited about it, and they're trying to find out what's it going to be about. What's it going to be this? And they're showing pictures of, you know, the Millennium Falcon like from from uh, space. <laughs> you know, someone has found the place on the lot where the Millennium Falcon is, and they're they're like picking it apart and looking for all these different details and does it look the same and does it this and does it that. And so there was a great deal of anticipation for the films to come out. And of course people had ideas about what the movie was going to be. Um, so in general, in general The Force Awakens was pretty well received. People liked it for the most part. There were some things that people didn't like um, but they were able to overlook it and to go on. But here's what happened. Um, After The Force Awakens, there were some new characters that were introduced and there were some questions about these characters and who they might be and in particular who their parents might be and all these other things. And so in the two years between The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, people had all kinds of theories as to what The Last Jedi was going to be about. And who was this person's parents and where did this person come from and who was going to come back into the story and all these things. And they were so serious and they had studied the first film so thoroughly and they had gone back over all the other films that they were convinced this is what the story was going to be. It was going to be this story. And then the movie came out and guess what? It was that story. And let me tell you something. The die-hard Star Wars fans hated it. You should talk to Jeff sometime when he's here about The Last Jedi. It's, it is a good time. It's a good time. I highly recommend it. Uh, bring popcorn and something to drink. So, they, they just, they hated it. They hated it. Now, just looking at this objectively, alright, why did they hate it so much? Because it wasn't what they thought it was going to be and they were there were such strong opinions about this that one actress even started receiving violent threats of violence on her because they hated her character so much she had to go off social media she had to kind of hide for a while uh it was just it was i mean i don't think she got any death threats per se uh it was just more like i hope you cease to exist in the universe as we know it you know those kinds of things um You know, I hope you get shot by a blaster in a bar on Tatooine. I don't know. One of those weird uh, Star Wars things to say. But this illustrates something for us which is very important, not just for this morning, but for the entire story of the life of Jesus. And that is this. We are not at our best when our expectations are not met. We just aren't. And... It happens all the time in all sorts of different ways. In fact, the classic one, which is my absolute favorite, is when we fail to meet someone's expectations, yet we never knew what their expectations were. And they are so mad at us. And and here's and, and here's the, the thing, the, the phrase that really just drives the dagger in. Well, you should have known. Because now, not only did you not do what they wanted you to do, but you're also some kind of terrorless jerk who doesn't even pay attention to them anyway. Because if you had, then you would have known what it was that they wanted. We are not at our best when our expectations aren't met. It's just a simple truth about us. Um, So, Keep that in the back of your mind this morning, as as we go into this story. So again, the people of God hadn't heard from God in as direct a way as they had been accustomed to, but there were still people prophesying. There were still people hearing words from God. It just didn't make it into the Old Testament, uh, but there was still a lot going on uh, when the old when the New Testament starts. Uh, but it, it is sort of a chapter, a new chapter of the story, though. But the environment is important for us to understand. Okay, it has been a, a very chaotic time. Um, again, there is not the kind of overpowering direct word from God or or prophet that really takes sort of central stage. Uh, they divide themselves up into religious groups. Rome is taken over. Uh, there is just a lot that has happened during that time. And it is into this place. That Jesus is born. And I, I pointed this out earlier, okay? The whole nation of Israel was very, very much looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Um, even those who rejected Jesus during his ministry, they were not rejecting the idea of the Messiah, they were rejecting him as Messiah. But the idea of the Messiah is one that they were still holding on to and looking forward to. But the fact of the matter is that they had very, very specific expectations for who this was going to be. Uh, Most significantly, Jewish tradition affirms at least five things about the Messiah that would help you recognize who they are and know to follow this person. Number one, he will be a descendant of King David. Um, He will gain sovereignty over the whole land of Israel, bring everybody together, he'll be the king. He will gather the Jews there from the four corners of the earth. He will restore them to full observance of Torah law, and as a grand finale, he will bring peace to the entire world. Okay, now that's a pretty, that's a pretty specific kind of list of things there that is on this sort of prerequisite for even being considered the Messiah in the first place. So, within the specific context of the time of Jesus, they believed he would be a leader like King David. His job was to overthrow Rome and do all of these things. But here's one other extra point, okay? They also believed that the Messiah would be human, not sharing divinity with God. So, there's that element of it. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus could not be any more different than this expectation of who they think he's going to be. You know, he's not interested in battle at all. He's not interested in overthrowing Rome. Instead, he comes and what does he do? He challenges them. The people who have been hanging on for God. The people who have been looking uh, for this Messiah to come. So he just doesn't He just doesn't fit this thing. But here's something else you may not be aware of, which I just find really interesting. There was a a Jewish historian named Josephus, and he wrote different things around that time. And it's actually his writings are a really good way to get a different perspective on what was happening within the life of the church, because he's writing during the time of Jesus and during the time of the early church. So you get to you get to just hear and see a lot of different things. But here's something he points out, which I think is, is crucial for us to understand where the Jewish people were. It appears that in the first century before the destruction of the temple, which happened in uh, 70 A.D., there were several messiahs who rose up and said they were the ones to lead Israel out of captivity and to restore them to the nation again. So let me just give you an example or two, okay? Just really quick. Um, and about 44, Josephus reported um, a certain imposter, his name was Theodos, who claimed to be a prophet, appeared and urged the people to follow him with their belongings to the Jordan, which he would divide for them. He secured about 400 followers. Um, the Roman uh, sort of governor or military leader at the time uh, led a group out on horsemen and he killed them all. So that was the end of that Messiah story. Uh, another was an Egyptian, and he is said to have gathered together 30,000 people whom he summoned to the Mount of Olives opposite Jerusalem, promising that at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall down and that his followers would enter and possess and take control of the city. But again, now Felix, who was the one who led the military at that time, uh, met the group with his soldiers. And uh, <laughs> this is terrible. Um, but this uh, Egyptian leader, he escaped. But almost all of his followers were killed. So I, I share these few background things with you just so that you understand. Not only does Jesus not fit the bill, but there have been others before he before this time even, and the time after him, there are all these other jokers who are like, No, I'm the Messiah. No, I'm the Messiah. No, I'm the Messiah. And what has happened with every single one of those movements? They all ended. A lot of times violently. They all ended violently. And the Messiah never came. So, is Jesus what the Jewish people were expecting? Not really. Not really. And we need to appreciate that for a moment. We really do. We need to appreciate that Jesus was not what they were expecting. And can we just be honest here? Okay. There was no one that was expecting the Jesus we got. No one could have foreseen who this man, this son of God, was going to be. What he was going to be like and what he was going to do. Um, So the gospel writers, when they start writing about Jesus... Think about what their job is, okay? They're writing to different people who have heard all kinds of different things about who Jesus is. And so when Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John sit down to write their Gospels, they need to make sure that people understand just who Jesus is, because who Jesus is sets him apart from every other Messiah that has tried to claim the throne. Make sense, and the place where you get sort of the most in-depth look at who Jesus is comes from John chapter one. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'll be reading it here for you, and it'll be on the screen. Um, in all four Gospels, uh, the writers are writing to slightly different audiences at different places in their lives, and but they all want to say who Jesus is. Now, John. The, the, the Jesus that appears in John is slightly different than the Jesus that you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and the way that he's different, it's not like he's a completely different person. But the way I like to put it is this. Jesus in the book of John kind of hovers over the ground the entire time. He just floats from one place to the next. And here's what I mean by that. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when you come to the end and Jesus is in the garden, uh, what does he pray? Who knows? Matthew Mark and Luke, he's in the garden, it's coming to the end, he's sweating blood. What does he pray? Take this from me. In John, he gets to the garden, and you know what he prays? God, take care of my take care of those who are following me, and give them the strength and pull them together and make them one. And so it's just it's a different look. It's a slightly different look, but they're all true. They are all true to who Jesus is. Uh, so John chapter one, verses one through fourteen. listen to these words. Of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay. There's a lot going on there, yeah? Yeah? Well, what are the things that we learn about Jesus within this one section of Scripture? Uh, so, what does it tell us? Number one, it tells us that Jesus was with God from the beginning. Which means something very important. If he was with God from the beginning, then what is he? He's God. God. Sure. What else? Creator. Eternal. There we go. He's eternal. If he was with God in the beginning, we find that he's been around a long time. In fact, he's been around so long that he was he um, took part in the creating process. He was part of that process of creating the world. And when you think back to Genesis, when God... Created everything except mankind. How did he create those things? He spoke them into existence, and what has John called Jesus? the word who is full of life and light. Um, so he number three, he is life and light, and he will overcome. nothing can can push him back or or overcome him. Um, and then this is this is the important part. Uh, he's going to become flesh and come into the world which he helped create. Now, this is an important message that John wanted the early church to hear, that he wanted people to understand, because it tells them where Jesus came from and who he is before he tells them anything about Jesus, the man. He has a history beyond even what you've heard. Um, and, And Jesus, and it's important for this reason... Jesus was not just someone that came out of nowhere and claimed to be the Son of God. No, he was with God from the very beginning. He helped create the world. He helped make all things. Nothing was made that he did not take part in. He has life inside of him, and he was a part of all of these things. But this passage tells us one more thing that is really important. He would come to the world he made, but the world would not recognize him they would not recognize him. Those who do, though, would become children of God. So he's going to come to this place that he helped make, but it's not going to be super happy awesome time, right? Because they're going to see him and think what? Who are you? I don't know you. Now, some people will, though. Some people will see him, and those that do see him, they become children of God. So from the very start of the story of Jesus coming to earth, there are people who recognize him for who he is, while there are a whole bunch of others that do not recognize him at all. And the question that I have is this, why do some see him and others do not? Why do some see him and others do not? And it's at this point that we need to remind ourselves of something very important. What kind of person is God looking for to be his child? Someone who will listen, hear, and follow. Someone who will listen, who will hear, and who will follow. Now, heaven itself is not just going to sit back and hope for the best. Like, man, I sure hope this Jesus thing goes okay. Um, first, it needs to tell people about what's going on, and like Randy was saying earlier uh, in his children's sermon, like, how would you expect how would you expect God to tell the Earth about this special event? Keep that in the back of your head for a second. I think the next little alert is a great idea. <laughs> Everybody's phone beeps at the same time. So The first thing that God has to do is to tell the person that it's going to affect the most. Fair? Right? Because he needs to do this. So from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, an angel appeared to Mary. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth is a relative of Mary's who is having John the Baptist. You're going to be really lucky. You just don't know how lucky. Um, I'm not sure that I like what that means. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled, then the angel left her. Okay. First things first, right? This explanation is desperately needed. I mean, otherwise she's just gonna wake up pregnant. And that doesn't, that doesn't work. But, but here's the real reason I think why we have this moment in time. It's not just to give her the facts and to tell her what's going to happen to her. Mary needed to be invited into the story. So that she could be a willing participant in the story that God was writing. God wasn't just going to do something to her. He wanted her to choose to join him in what he was doing. And there are some really important details that are given to Mary in this whole angelic speech. And, And there are things that she needs to hear and as best as she can understand. Number one, her son will be named Jesus. Number two, he is the son of the most high. Literally. He is the son of the most high. Number three, he is going to take the throne of David. Now, this is an important note that is thrown in there, I think, for Mary to associate with something. Because does she understand, really, what Jesus being the son of God means? Well, Probably not, even though there's an angel standing in front of her that's telling her this is going to happen. But by saying he is going to be in the throne of David, what can Mary, a Jewish woman, then associate him with? The Messiah, right? She can make this connection, okay? He's going to be tied in this way. Number four, he will reign over Israel forever, which again is a common theme. Uh, His kingdom will never end. And then number five, the best part of it. No word from God ever fails. No word from God ever fails. Now, that's sort of the end of the speech there. Why are those few words so critical to Mary? Because she's about to enter the hardest time of her life. And what is the one thing she needs to know from God? I will not fail you on this. I won't. And so she, she accepts what it is that he is asking her. Um, while God was doing something new and expected, there were elements to the message that would have been familiar and comforting to her. And in response, I just love, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. What kind of person did God need? listen. Here, follow. What did Mary just do? Those things. Or here, listen, follow. I'm going to get that mixed up a few times probably. Um, So to make the story go forward, now an angel has to appear to someone else, which who is the other person the angel has to appear to? God appeared to Joseph, right? Because Joseph is, is a player in this thing. And Joseph, maybe more than anyone else, needed an explanation as to what's happening. Fair? Yeah. He, he needs an explanation, like, <laughs> Holy Spirit, baby, that's a new one, <laughs> right? <laughs> Joseph and Mary were committed to each other, and we learned at the time of the angel's visit that they were betrothed, although uh, this was somewhat similar to our modern practice of being engaged, there were some differences Uh, The couple was not yet officially married and that they still lived apart and did not engage in any sort of sexual relationship. Um, Yet to have a sexual relationship with anyone uh, else during this betrothal time would have been considered adultery, even though they weren't yet married. And adultery was a crime that was punishable by death. Um, Joseph was also committed to obeying the Lord. So when he walks into this scenario and Mary is pregnant, it's not doesn't mean he's going to kill Mary, but he is going to uphold what God would want him to do. And if you show up and your betrothed is pregnant, then you you leave that situation. And he receives a call from God that was somewhat different from Mary's. But it required the same step of faith. He had to trust and believe that like Mary, God was at work doing something amazing. And even more so, I think, although Mary's, what Mary does is so incredible, he has to decide, even though I don't really get this. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's, we, I, I feel like we know so little about Joseph. And I wish I knew more about him. So Mary and Joseph, they both know what's going on, and they are both now on board. Uh, Elizabeth knows, and she's about ready to give birth to John the Baptist, and all the key players are on board. But what now? All right? The key players on board, they know what's going on, but what happens next? And as the event draws closer, there are some things that happen which are significant. Number one, a census was ordered in the land, and... um, which meant that Mary and Joseph had to travel to the little town of Bethlehem, or old little town of Bethlehem. As it happens, Bethlehem was a city of David, um, but there was not any special treatment there for the poor, this unwed couple with a Holy Spirit baby on the way. There was nothing for them. So already the story is a completely weird story. Because the Son of God is about to come into the world, and yet, who notices? Nobody. Nobody notices. And so, Joseph and Mary are put out into the barn with the animals. But like I said, heaven wants there to be some sort of announcement, right? So, if God wants to let the world know that Jesus is coming, he's going to tell the world, and how would God tell the How should he tell the world? Uh, Skywriting, I mean, maybe, you know, like a hand on the wall, perhaps. Um, a flaming bush that is really, really large. There's lots of ways this could go. But what does God not do, church? What does he not do? He doesn't tell the whole world. He doesn't tell the whole world. Why? Why doesn't he tell the whole world? It's an interesting question to think about. Because he actually does announce it. And he first appeared to a group of shepherds. From Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and laying in a manger. Suddenly, <laughs> Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those whom his favor rests. For all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Okay, there's something that we probably don't give enough credit to within this entire scenario. And that is this, how freaked out these guys must have been. Seriously, these guys, they see one angel. And what does the angel have to tell them? Do not be afraid. And we've heard that a couple other times, right? Do not be afraid. Because seeing an angel is scary. It is. And then the angel tells him these things and then the angel is joined by a whole gang of angels who start singing a heavenly song. Mercy, that would be frightening. Like you're just trying to absorb the fact that you are talking to an angel and what it looks like and what it is, and the angel is telling you that a Savior is coming, and that's kind of big news, right? I need a, I need a moment to process that. And then they start singing at you. But it all, it all ends there, and they decide that they have to go. They have to go. And so the shepherds did three very important things for the story. The first one is, they went to find Jesus, which tells us something about these shepherds, doesn't it? What does Mary's response tell us about her? What does Joseph's response tell us about him? What does their response tell us about them? Right? They heard, they listened, and what did they do? They, they were told where to go find him. And they take that piece of information and they don't go, man, that was weird. Right? They say, let's go. And, and they go. And so they went to find Jesus. The second thing, they passed along the story to Mary and Joseph about the angels. Oh, this is so important. Because what has Mary just done, right? She's given birth in a barn, in a place where no one would give them any place to stay. Is this what bringing the Son of God into the world is supposed to be like? I don't think so. And yet here come these, <laughs> these guys. Right? Here come these guys. And they walk in and they tell Mary the story. And, and, and the passage tells us that Mary stored these things up in her heart. This is where she got that confirmation, although she's had it before, of, okay, this is really happening. Like, just like it was supposed to. Um, and then the shepherds went out and told everything, everyone else about everything that had happened to them. And we cannot miss this point because it is important. As they go out and they tell everyone else about everything that has happened, everything they've seen, everything they've heard, they glorify who? God. They glorify God. They are now the worshipping, storytelling shepherds. Right? And, and they go out and they tell everyone about that. Okay, so... But it still doesn't answer the question that we originally asked. Why do some people see him or get this kind of, you know, if, if angels came and saying to everybody, well then wouldn't everybody know that Jesus was there? I'm going to ask you a question that I do not want you to answer right now. But I want you to think about this. If God had told everyone that the Messiah was there, would everyone have allowed the messiah to be the messiah that god wanted i told you not to answer people <laughs> there's a there's something we need to to see now i mean yes the angels appeared to uh, to the shepherds and they sing their heavenly song. They did these things and they found. Angels appeared to Mary and Joseph and they, they did this thing. But there are a couple of cases we need to look at which sort of f- flesh this out a little bit more for us. The first one is the case of the wise men. Now, the wise men, they work for King Herod, who is the Jewish figurehead king that's been appointed by Rome. And so his job is to be completely weird and live in you know, his own little house and have sort of all sorts of treachery with his children. And, but here's what happens, okay? The wise men were looking at the stars. They were looking at the stars and they were reading the stars. And this is what they do. And, and they've been looking at the stars and reading the stars. And in the stars that they are looking at, what do they see? They see a message that the king has been born. And so they go to Herod and they said, We have been looking at the stars. A king has been born. And Herod says, You know, calls everyone together, Hey, the Messiah's been, I am so excited that the king has been born. And then he takes the wise men aside and says, Okay, well, go see if you can find him. But there's a little part in there that we can tend to overlook. When the wise men come and they tell Herod that the king has been born, they say, we want to go find him so that we can worship him. So Herod, the wheels are turning and he's starting to think about something else. And in reaction to all of this, Herod actually creates a genocide for an entire generation of children trying to off the king who had been born. But the wise men, they follow the star, and they follow the star, and the star takes them to now what is the most popular barn in the city of Bethlehem, and they show up, and they give gifts, and they tell Mary, we saw in the stars, we follow the star to this place the king has been born. And what do they do? They worship him. They worship him. If they had not been looking to the heavens, they would not have seen the signs. But they were, and they did. Secondly, there's the case of Anna and Simeon. Simeon was uh, waiting at the temple for the redemption of Israel. Uh, He'd been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before seeing the Lord's Messiah. And Anna was a prophet who, uh, her husband had died really when she was really young, and she stayed at the temple. She worshipped day and night. Day and night. This one was there worshiping at the temple. Uh, when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to be presented at the temple, guess what happened? Both Simeon and Anna saw the baby, and what did they say? This is the Son of God. This is, and they tell everybody, they tell everybody, this is the Son of God. And then they start prophesying and telling everyone about what this child is going to do. Here's something that I don't know that I really have considered, but I think it's important. There were probably a ton of people at the temple that day. And how many looked at Jesus and knew who he was? Two. Two. Looked at Jesus and knew who he was. Why did these two know from that early of a time that this was the Son of God when everyone else was like, Oh, cute baby. Mine is cuter. It's because they both waited and they watched. They were actually spending their lives looking for him. And because they spent their lives dedicated to look for him, when he showed up, they saw. And they praised God for that. They were all looking, all waiting. They were open to what God was doing. And therefore, they got to be a part of telling the story of the coming Messiah. So what is the conclusion that we draw from this? Well, here's a pretty simple one, I think. Even here at the beginning of this story, God is looking for people to hear, to listen, and to follow. Because God needs people who will carry out His plan, who will believe in Him, and who will follow his lead, even if it was something different than they were expecting God to do. And if God had announced Jesus to the world, everyone would have said, the king is here. The one who is going to take the throne of David. The one who is going to lead us in battle over Rome. The one who is who's going to give us victory over our enemies. The one who's going to raise Jerusalem up. The one who's going to bring peace to the world. Let's make him into that. Right? Because when we have our idea of what God should be doing, what is the first thing we try to do? Mold whatever it is into what we think it should be. So instead of telling everyone, God is looking for those people ...who are not going to meet Jesus and say, here's who you should be. Instead, he's looking for people that are going to meet Jesus and say, you are the Son of God. You show me what to do. You show me what to do. And we see this play out in the life of Jesus. Those who are open to what God is doing, who are looking for a change, these are the ones that find Jesus... They want Jesus to transform their lives. They're not against it. But those who are closed off, who are not looking, who already know what the Savior is supposed to be, these people will walk right by him. Will walk right by him. And never see who he is. Which is why we take a closer look this morning in closing, at Mary's response when she realized she was going to have the Son of God for real. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. What did she realize? I am a part of the story. I'm a part of the story. And I will always be a part of the story. The story of what God is doing. And she speaks of his faithfulness and the goodness and the things he's done all those times before. And she glories in the moment of knowing that she gets to do something absolutely insane, but it's done by the God who loves her and is faithful. And her whole point of view changes to where she says, God has done great things for me. Great things for me. God ruined her life, but he did great things for Do we know what God is always going to do? No, we don't. Are we waiting for him to change everything, even us? That's tough, right? And we've been talking about that a lot. But here's what I want us to understand. We can miss what God is doing if we are not willing to let him change whatever it is he wants to change to give us not the messiah we think we want but the messiah that we need because what god did in jesus was far greater than what everything everyone else was looking for and to think that they gave up they gave up the forgiveness of sin the grace of god eternal life with him because he just didn't look right. We can miss out on what God is doing if we are not willing to let him change whatever it is he wants to change. And that is what we believe here. We believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. It changes the way we experience community. It changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way that we respond to other people and it changes the way that we understand the needs of others. Because at the center of our story is the coming of the Savior. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank, you for, we thank you for this perspective today. God, we're grateful for the people who are willing to say, You are God. You take the lead. I will follow you. And that recognize your goodness in all of these things. God, we are grateful that you are a God whose word will never fail. Will never fail. That when you promise to do something, you follow through every time. That God, you don't push us out the door and then make us fend for ourselves. That you are a God who is with us. May our hearts be open to wherever it is you want us to go. To whatever it is you want us to do. And may we respond. I am your servant. May your word be fulfilled in me. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you uh, have any needs this morning for prayers or encouragement or anything else, we invite you to come forward as we stand, and sing the song together.